welcome everybody to another edition of Suave Talk presented by Dyer's Top Rods and Turbo. Coronavirus officially sucks ass. It's terrible, dude. Like we've uh, really, I've just been doing a lot of cleaning, mopping. Um, bodies are built. You know, basically, I told Eric, uh, I said the only way that we can continue to find something to do here is we can either tear these cars all the way back down again and rebuild them or you just gotta you know buy more parts and noses and bodies and things like that and i told him i was like honestly the way things are going i think uh it'd be in all of our interest to not do that so we've got everything ready on our end so i'm actually currently headed to my good buddy steven roberts that damn steven (laughs) and i'm gonna work on his stuff because a lot of people don't realize his race operation starts at the dream that's his first race and he races pretty wide open until like brunswick so he's got the winter off but he uh he doesn't wear his his work's real seasonal kind of like he does a lot of uh basically his his busy season is brunswick till july that's when bees do all their things so They're making their moves there making babies yeah bees are making moves making babies pollinating things and he's like wide open works seven days a week so he texted me he was like hey you want to come down here and get my stuff ready because one motor's blowed up one car is crashed and then he's got another car that needs to be sold so basically i got two or three weeks worth of work down here if you know if we can't go racing that's my plan is just to hunker down down here and he's got a fine collection of firearms i'd imagine and water and tp so really i feel like i'm in a pretty good spot if the world was to come to an end down here in jessup but seriously what is your initial thoughts on this pandemic that You've seen on the news all the time. I know like maybe a few weeks ago, people weren't taking it seriously. And then all of a sudden, look what's going on across America and across the world. It's definitely serious. But honestly, uh, me and Caitlin have quite a few conspiracy theories. And really, I just feel like there's something else going on. Um, you can watch a lot of videos and things like that, you know, conspiracies and things along that nature. And I'm not, I really am not that political. I could care less. I don't vote. I, uh. I'm one of those people that I feel like my vote doesn't really matter. The world's going to go on no matter how it happens, but it's definitely something serious and you got to look at it two ways. They're making it so serious. Why is it killing that many people or is it because it's that serious that something's going on, you know, that they need everyone's attention on the Corona and they're obviously doing a great job. You can't get on any social media news station, nothing without about Corona. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, the thing is, is we don't know exactly what's going on and that's where, there's a lot of confusion. I would feel like if there's a super virus going around killing everybody, it would be a, uh, you know, it would be like, Hey, look, this is the deal. Like they're telling us to wash our hands and not breathe on any people and lick doorknobs, which is what we were doing before. That's what I've been practicing for 23 years and most normal human beings do. So, um, the fact that we're canceling all large group events, it's like, uh, you know, it makes you wonder why are we doing this, uh, you know, to help, prevent the spread like if you've got the flu in times past you're supposed to stay home it should it be a national news deal and i mean i'm not a statistician but the amount of people that are dying and things like that compared to what's actually happening it just uh to me it's there's something going on the best way to put it is there's something definitely going on that's really 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 big and in my eyes i don't think coronavirus is it i think there's a you know alter motives and things like that going on and maybe i'll be wrong and maybe we'll all find out but i am a 100 percent believer i already had it being in australia and i got super sick there and i got super sick in uh in florida and they said i had bronchitis flu-like symptoms i had the whole nine but they just gave me antibiotics and they were on my treat i got over it and uh i definitely don't wish it upon anyone i was in a, i was super super sick but i just 
I, uh, you know, I think that it's something that's been out and about and now it's just, it's people are making it a big, big deal. And honestly, it's, it's not helping a lot of the small business owners and independents like myself that race and, you know, kind of rely on those large gatherings to make a living and to support themselves. So that's my two cents on it. If you don't agree, that's fine. Uh, you can call me anytime and I'll tell you why I don't think you're right. And you can tell me why you don't think I'm right, but that's really what I think on it. What about you? I mean, what's your take? Do you think that this is just super virus or is there, I th- you know, or are you, I did not, I, I'm going to be honest. I did not take it serious. Cause I remember in Florida, it was like, that's when it was happening in China. And there was maybe a few cases in America at that point. And I wasn't taking it seriously, but once, I think it opened up a lot of people's eyes is when that Ruby, Rudy Gobert from the Jazz got it and they canceled the NBA season or suspended it, and then all of a sudden it just trickled down to the NCAA tournament. Once these billion-dollar industries that are making millions and billions are you know shutting things down, especially the NCAA tournament, they canceled or they postponed the Masters. The Masters don't give a shit about anybody. They're still going to do it. That's when I kind of think maybe it's more serious than it is. I just think that right now we don't know much about it that they're taking these extra precautions, which maybe in the future we're like, well, that was kind of ridiculous. But then again, I'd rather them be more cautious so we have enough hospital beds and all that stuff. But, yeah, I don't – it's just it's just crazy that all these sports are canceling and stuff. Yeah, a lot know, of unknowns. That's, and that's, that's what I don't like. You know, it's, it's pretty simple. If there's a – you know, if a war's going on, they're like, hey, this place just got bombed or this and that. But, I mean, we really don't know. There's people that have it, and I, I don't – by any means, I don't want it to spread. I don't want it to be – come way worse than it is it's just really really unknown and fishy you know like if it would be something if like the whole city some city in california everybody dies but it's not like that you know and i and i don't want it to get to that point i'm following the precautions i've been social distancing and i mean we really haven't done anything i haven't been going in contact haven't been eating out or anything like that it's just i don't know it just makes you wonder if you really sit down and look at it with all the free time we got i ain't got time to do a whole lot except read and you know, look online and I try to go to ulterior news sites and things like that just to, or alternative ones, just to get a different opinion on it than what CNN and MSNBC and Fox puts out, you know? Yeah. Just imagine 17 days ago, you want to feature at Boot Hill, Boot Hill Speedway. It's wild how much our sport has changed since then. Cause I remember when, you know, some tracks said they were going to keep racing and until those government kind of mandated, you know, you can't have more than 20 to 10 people, even like that. They're down to 10 people now in America. So it's crazy how much how fast this thing's moving along. Yeah, it's wild. And uh, another spin we could spin off this a little bit is, you know, kind of how iRacing and all the the sim video games is like taking over and, and the Swab the Nationals, the Swab Nationals, and things like that. And there's one thing like I just have to put it out there because it drives me bonkers. Like the fact that we're we, I, I mean, I personally I don't iRace or do any of that. I played R Factor back today. I love 2002 sprint cars. If I had an Xbox, I would play Swab Nationals. But I do not in any way, shape, or form think that that's a realistic justification of your skills as a driver. Like, it pisses me off when I get on Twitter, Facebook, and these guys are like, like, don't get me wrong, it's cool, it's badass. But, like, just because you won at Homestead Miami in a sim car does not fucking mean you can show up in a NASCAR race and win. Or if you could win 50 midget races at Eldora in a sim car, I do not believe that that's a correlation to you being able to get in a midget and race. And, like, I have seen so many, that's all that, like, if you want to see anything racing, it's about sim racing, sim racing, this and that, and this guy won the Rattler 250 by half a 10, they were crashing and shit, like, it's cool, but it's like, you got to put it in proportion, like, we put it, I just, I don't, I don't buy into it, like, Colby Richmond is one of the best Madden players I've ever seen in my life, 
and he weighs about a buck 42 and will never start for the Jacksonville Jaguars. Like it's just not going to happen. So that is one thing that has been driving me bonkers. I could, I, I can't stand it. I like watching some of the stuff, but it just gets, it gets too like, like a guy that gets an award for winning at a world of outlaw banquet. That's a real, you know, it's a real deal. That's what 10 people have spent all year and a lot, a lot of money to do. And we're putting a guy that bought a $3,000 video game set up in the same category. Like it's just, it makes me really question where some people's minds are in racing to, to even put it on the same platform. And that's just my two cents on that. I know I'll get a lot of backlash from that from hardcore gamers, but realistically, Oh, last, last, last point of it, Mike McQuinney, Mike McKinney tweeted out. Yeah, his heart rate, his night, heart rate through the roof sim race compared to the real thing. Heart rate of a of a sim race than a real race. That is the most false statement I've ever said. Mike's my friend. He might be a little upset with me, but like, like there is no fucking way a guy leading the Eldora World 100 is shitting his pants on iRacing more than the guy that's actually leading the Eldora World 100 in real life in a race car that pays fifty thousand dollars to win. Like, come on, man. You know? The best was Rigsby's response. I imagine Tom Brady says the same thing when he's playing that, and I laughed my ass off when he posted that. <laughs> it's the truth. It's a fucking video game. Like, dude, I, I have cousins that are like 13 years old that will whoop my ass in ping pong, tennis, any kind of game on a video game, but in real life, like, they just can't do it. And it's not because they probably don't have the mindset or whatever, but like if your body isn't 6'6", 240, you're not going to start with the Chicago Bears. Like it's just not going to happen. So like how can you say a guy that's never even sat in a race car and felt the pure speed, you know what I mean? Like you never understand until you've raced a race car. And if you sat in a street stock when you were 12 to 20 years old, the first time you went around the racetrack, you probably thought you were hauling ass and you like weren't even in the gas. And those are the same guys that at one point probably could have won, you know, every sim race in the world. And I just, I don't think it correlates at all. And it honestly, like when I see, I don't, I'm not mad that a guy gets praised for winning it and it's getting publicity and things like that. But we got to, you know, simmer down with the man, this guy, he could be really good because he's a sim racer. Like, I mean, if that guy can show up and win a Saturday night local show, then we can, you know, there's baby steps to being a, a good race car driver. And sim racing, in my eyes, is not really the, the step to do, especially on dirt, because a lot of those guys, you know, they're good asphalt racers and, just watching them drive an asphalt car on a sim and then watching a guy drive a dirt car. It's like, I've never done that in my car. And it's, you know what I mean? It's just, it's funny to, from my point of view to watch it and, you know, see how bent out of shape people get about it. Yeah. I'm okay with it now because we actually get to see some former race and it's pretty cool to see professional drivers. And I don't know, maybe I might be breaking a little bit of news, but there could be something on Dirt on Dirt where we're streaming a big late model sim race here in the next couple of weeks. So maybe we can get Tyler to enter. But yeah, I'm with you. There's no, it, yeah, it's cool, but I don't think it's as realistic as some people get it. But you know, Turbo, one driver that's probably never played iRacing was our guest this week, and that was Steve Francis. And you appreciate history of dirt late model racing. So when he was doing telling you the old school stories and how he started i could tell you were very pumped up and excited to hear from him yeah francis is a he is really really good and you know he kind of gets discredited not discredited like you know francis he'll tell you how good he is and they kind of they like to pick on him and he takes it really well but he did really good you know the times the time that he raced and he was very successful and made a lot of money and is really probably in a good spot you know at the end of his career a lot of people like he said after they get done racing they're you know, they're not set up as well as you would think a guy would be after winning as much races and money as they do. And 
I feel like he's a guy that definitely made the most of his racing career, but now is also figuring out how to live live his life without sitting in a race car driving it every day. And uh, you know, I have for Francis, and I think he's a, he's a guy. I mean, he is a Hall of Famer, so he's a guy that you definitely you like hearing stories about him. And you know, when he talks about traveling up the road with Eckerd and people like that, I I really enjoy hearing stuff like that. Here's our guest for this week, the Hall of Famer Steve Francis. Joining us now on the Integra Shocks and Springs Hotline is Dirt Late Model Hall of Famer and the Lucas Oil Late Model Dirt Series Tech Director, Steve Francis. Steve, I got to ask you first, what would you rather be called, a Hall of Famer or a Tech Director? <laughs> I guess Hall of Famer, but you know, I, I do love what I'm doing now. I, I enjoy it. I, I still enjoy the sport that much. You've been in racing for a long, long time, and I'm kind of reading an article that Kovac wrote about you when he retired, and he said you've been around dirt late models virtually your entire life. You went to the World 100 when you were seven or eight, and you thought that race was bigger than the Daytona 500. So dirt late model racing has been in your blood since you were very young. Well, I was that kid, and this is kind of goes back way back. Uh, we lived in Florida when I was little, I don't know, two, three years old. And my dad took me to a, 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 an asphalt race. And I remember Bobby Allison was there. I don't remember. He told me Bobby Allison was there. And, you know, they raced and everything, and I left her, and he said, that's all I talked about all the way home was that was what I was going to be, and what I wanted to do was be a race car driver. So, damn, man, ain't many guys get to live out their lifelong dream from the time they're two years old. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I've always wanted to be one, too, and, you know, to to see a guy like you. I've always, what's crazy is I used to look up to you and, you know, um, Scott and Billy and people like that. I always watched, and my, like, my most thing I always remember Steve Francis for was when you drove the Barry Wright house car. I went to the topless one year when you won the topless and uh, I believe y'all had a Valvoline sponsorship then too. You had a red and yellow car. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. yeah, we had Valvoline there and had a red and yellow car and um, I remember we unloaded, uh, Barry had built a brand new car at that topless and um, it rained a little bit practice day. So we went out there and just singing, like, we're going around beach for like 1220. And I pulled back in, and Hoosier Pup, everybody, I think everybody knows Jimmy Thomas, Hoosier Pup. Hoosier Pup goes over and said, do you know how fast you're going? And I said, that felt pretty good. I said, well, I'll load this thing back up and get the other car back out. And he looked at me like I had three eyeballs. Yeah. Because um, that car, it just had that feel that, like, soon as a little bit of grip left, it wasn't going to steer very good. So we just mm-hmm. got our old faithful car out, and, and away we went. Yeah, that was my first, you know, like, I remember watching that, and it was just crazy to me. I was like, man, that guy's awesome. And then. I think that year, shoot, you won like two or three crown jewels. You just won a lot, a lot of stuff in Barry's car. And, uh, you know, it was always pretty cool. And then, you know, fast forward to the last three or four years when you had the, the Rhino Ag capital car. Last year, you raced really. I raced with you quite a bit. And I don't ever, we didn't really communicate or interact that much. And now, shoot, I feel like I talk to you all the time. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's crazy what, like, what I think I'm usually on your ass about when you something. don't meet. Yeah, yeah, and, like, what's crazy is I used to, like, I didn't really know what to think about you because I never talked to you, so I didn't know. I was like, man, is he kind of a dick? Like, I don't really know. You know, he just he just kind of seems like he's in his own world, and now that I talk to you, you're honestly one of my favorite people to talk to at the racetrack. So it's, it's crazy how it changes when you get to know people, and you probably thought the same thing about me. You probably like, man, this guy, what a scrub or something. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. It's just funny. And I, <laughs> no, I, I think it's crazy how things talk. change. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? What do you say? But it, it does get that way. I said, I said, I thought you were some kind of arrogant young punk, you know, or something like that. But Scott Blinquist told me a long time ago. He said, man, he said, we went to Australia. I was in Australia with Scott and Charlie Swartz. Man, we're talking back in the nineties. And Scott was like, man, we had a blast hanging out at the racetrack. But I never got around him, or not hanging out in Australia, but not at the racetrack. 
And I kind of got to know the guy a little bit. And I was like, he said, man, he said, when I'm at the racetrack, I'm there to do a job. I'm not necessarily there to be everybody's buddy. I'm there to do a job. And that kind of rang true with me at that point. Right. Right. It makes sense. I mean, it, it does. And that is one thing a lot of people, I mean, I guess you had that rep just because that's what you did and you did, you were successful at it and things like that. And it just, you never really know people until you know them outside of racing, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And it's, you know, it's now you're on the other side of the fence and people, I feel like know you a lot better just because you're in a different, you know, position at the racetrack. You're still there doing a job, but it's not quite, you know, it's not quite the same because you're not racing against everybody there. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't, I know pretty much everybody in the sport in some way or form or fashion. I know somebody that knows that person in the sport. I mean, it's all I've done for 40 years now. Um, so, you know, you, you learn everybody and you learn their habits and, and that kind of stuff. You know, it's kind of weird. You go through, and when you get late in your racing career, you'll understand this more, Tyler, but you go through and like, I was really fortunate. I got to race with the Freddie Smith, Charlie Swartz, Larry Moore, Buck Simmons. Then I got to race, then I got to race with the Tyler Herb, Bobby Pierce, um, Josh Richards era and there wasn't just a few of us guys that got to race both of those years you know me scott Flanagan, eckert mcdowell you know some of the few guys that got to race both into that era you know i can remember going to the racetrack when you had a if you had a dually and a, a, a five row tire rack on your trailer he was big time yeah right <laughs> right yeah and i was gonna say like there's only a select few of you guys the Dale McDowell's of the world, the Steve Francis of the world that, you know, race in two generations, the wedge nodes group with Charlie Schwartz and all them. And I feel like that's kind of like what you see in the movie six pack. There's that's a style and, you know, drive traveling and driving down the road to the professional side of it, you know, with Tyler or Brandon Shepard and Jonathan Davenport, you have really seen all facets of late model racing and seen it grow what it is today. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, I can remember when a $5,000 win show was, man, that was big money. Now, the the only difference is, you know, the Saturday night show hasn't changed a lot. They were still $1,000 back then. But now you can run three ten thousands, I think, every weekend of the year just about if you want to. And you've virtually been a points racer your entire racing career. The Stars, the World of Outlaws, the Habit Tampa, Lucas Oil. You've, and you've won in championships in all four of the series. What made you decide to just start points racing? <laughs> I don't know. I, I just I knew that I had to finish good enough to be able to financially go on to the next week. So I guess that's why I was able to be a pretty decent points racer. I think I could have probably won more bigger races had I not had that mentality of, well, my car is good enough for fourth. I'm going to take my fourth and get out of here. <laughs> and, and, and instead of, you know, knocking a deck out of it or something like that and have to work on the car all night. I knew that fourth paid X amount of dollars and I could go on next week at that point. Talk about the star series back in the day. That was the late eighties, early nineties. There was a definitely a good crop of drivers that raced that series. And then most of those guy drivers transform into the world of outlaws. Well, that, that old star series, you know, when I won my championships, there was me, Chubb, Balzano, Tim Hitt, um, Bart Hartman, I'm trying to think of who else was in Rick Eckert. Uh, you know, that was a group and it, it was a lot of fun. And, you know, it was really fun traveling that. I mean, we went six hours from, say, my home location was what basically the star circuit, maybe seven. And then 
when I moved up to have a Tampa, you know, I went from racing with, with Timmy Hitt and Balzano and, you know, us kind of running around together and parking together and Eckert to have a Tampa. And then it was me and Eckert and McDowell that traveled around a tremendous, tremendous amount together. And, and actually Mark Richard was a big part of that. You know, everybody knows I was in the rocket cars for, man, I think 16 years or something. That was the only chassis I drove. And, uh, you know, I still think of Mark as like my, my older brother and we'll still randomly just, we used to talk to each other three times a day. Now we'll randomly talk to each other maybe once every week or 10 days, but we might not ever even mention a race car. We might talk about old times or man, you remember when we went here and hung out or something like that. Then you went to the habit Tampa and then the dirty dozen started. And I have to, I have a few questions about the dirty dozen, Steve. Was there really a secret meeting in Pittsburgh or was it really not as secret as some people say it was? The very original meeting was at uh, PRI show, and that was Scott, Mark, uh, some of the guys from Hoosier, and myself was the very, very original um, meeting there at the PRI show at, at, at Indy. And then that set up the meeting at Pittsburgh. And then when you guys are like rock stars at series, do you think that is the greatest collective uh, group of drivers to run a series in one season? In that time frame, yes. I mean, but now, you know, you go back and look at some of the years of just go down the top 10 in points of that thing, you know, a few years there. You know, you had Scott, Billy, myself. You had Josh Richards and Tim McCready as rookies of the year. Um, you know, just go all the way down that thing, and that thing was stout, stout for when it was. Um, you know, Chubb Frank was winning a lot of big races at the time. Last thing about the Dirty Dozen, you won the points championship. You beat out Scott Bloomquist, and it went down, you know, to the last race of the year. To have your name associated of winning that title and maybe being the greatest, you know, driver's list of all, of all time for a race, that's got to feel pretty special. That's one of the you know, few things that you've won over the years. Yeah, you know, it, it was good to win that thing and, and you know, to finally win that championship. And, but there was just so much stuff back in the day that was so different. And, you know, if, if I go back, I guess what I think more about is, you know, I lost like a total of three championships by like a total of five points. Um, you know, I lost a tiebreaker to the tiebreaker to Moyer. The very first year, Scott, me and Scott went into the last race and he, like we ran a first and a second and he barely beat me in that one. Uh, the have a Tampa thing the year Rick beat me, Eckert beat me in the have a Tampa thing. Um, you know, it come down to, I think he broke an hex lock on the last lap and I could, like, I needed one more car to pass him and I win the have a Tampa championship. Then I have, you know, five or six of these major championships and, and I don't have those. And that's the part that still bothers me a little bit about my career. Yeah, that's one thing I've always asked you. I'm like, what about this race, Francis? Every time we go somewhere now, a lot of these places are new. And I'm like, have you ever won, you know, at Magnolia? you ever won here and there? And he's like, you know, I've won a lot of these places. And he always like, you know, I was leading at this place, though. And I almost won this race. He said, I'm telling you that, like, I can remember every detail of that so much better than the ones that I did win. And, like, just tell us your one biggest, like, I know you told me about the World 100 deal once. Uh, tell everybody, you know, about that, how you led, I think it was 80-something laps, and it blew the spoiler off, or a piece of trash or lead or something hit it. Uh, you told me about it one time, and I was like, man, that's crazy that, I mean, you knew every lap, every that was, detail. It was actually and it the was dream. Just, it, it was the dream. The dream, yeah. And it was the same year I won the World 100 in 99. 
and we're leaving uh-huh. this thing, and we're, I don't know, 75, 80 laps in, and I'm leading. Rick's running second. And, like, I'm a little better in traffic, and I can get away from him a little bit in traffic, but he can kind of catch me in open track. And I'm lapping Marshall Green, and I see Marshall just, like, graze the wall down the back stretch, you know, how you do that at Eldor. And I see his four flip up in the air and come down. And I thought, I just run over that thing. But actually, I go off into three and blow the right rear tire out, blow the deck out of it, you know, so on and so forth. So I don't get to win the dream. I mean, I'd let every lap up at that point. But if I could have won the dream that year, that would have been the dream, the world, and the dirt track world championship in a single season. Do I mean, that'd be like a Brandon Shepard deal, like what he did last year. I mean, that's like, it's hard to do all three. I think Moyers won what? Moyer won all three knocks. Moyers had close stuff like that, but not no one's ever won all three, I don't think. Have they? I, I don't think so. I mean, I mean, I, me and Jack Boggs, I think, are the only two to win the world and the dirt track in the same year. I think Moyer and 10, didn't he win Knoxville, Dream and World, I want to say? Yeah, that's what it was. That's Maybe what it was. he did he all win, three of He that. didn't win the dirt track. It, yeah, he never won the dirt track in the same year. Also, Steve Francis, we talked about Eldora earlier in this uh, interview. My very first time ever going to Eldora was 1999, World 100. So I'm just saying maybe I gave you a little good luck there and you know helped you <laughs> propel you to a big World 100. When I'm just saying I was, that was my first time ever there. <laughs> that 99 year was, you know, was really, really special. I mean, you got to go back 20 years, and we won 400. I think it was 462 thousand dollars that year, me and my brother. In 1999, that's a lot, a lot of money to win there. And you know, we had a chance to do a little bit of, you know, the craft. What's now, I guess, what is a Gander Outdoor Truck Series now? Or but at the time, it was the Craft Truck Series, and we had an opportunity to maybe do a little bit of that, and. I'm looking at this thing, and you know they're kind of reading me some numbers and stuff. And I'm looking, and I'm thinking, damn man, I'm gonna take a pay cut to go, you know, go run at Daytona 200 miles an hour, where you can really mess some stuff up. Now, mm-hmm. in hindsight, maybe that wasn't my best move, but you know, I, I wasn't. You know, my brother, we we had built this team together, and I wasn't going to take it apart for me to go try to do something different. Yeah, yeah. Um... Tell us, I mean, just kind of tell us the importance of your brother. And I've, I honestly haven't talked to you much about it, but like everyone's always talked about how your brother and you were like basically like a dream team, you know, like a Shane and Dale and like how important he was to your racing. And really, like I'd say when you were in your prime, you know, so to speak, when you first got into it, just kind of tell, you know, how important he was. Well, and him and kind I of started what he meant that to thing you. together. And he was kind of the. He was the worker behind it. I mean, he was the true, he was your Randall Edwards to me. You know what I mean? He uh-huh. he knew what I was thinking before I got to the pit area. Um, I, we really didn't even have to say that much. He knew what I was going to do. Um, you know, we each had things we did a whole week long at the shop. He took care of all the tires. I never thought about a tire or anything like that. You know, I did, back then it was all scaling. It wasn't spring smashing, but I did all the scaling on the car and everything like that with his help. And then, he took care of everything. I, we had a decal machine. He made the decals, the bodies, everything. He was really, really super good at sheet metal work in the day. And if you look back at pictures of my cars in the mid-90s, mid-late 90s, my cars were about as slick as anybody's on the country, you know, before we actually knew what Arrow really truly was. You know, he had right. kind of already figured that out. You know, if we got a lip here or a ridge here or, you know, we make a little sharper bend here. My cars always had those things. And I actually didn't realize it that much. So I'm going back looking at pictures nowadays. 
you know, you, somebody hands me an old magazine, you look at the car and think, damn, man, that thing was pretty slick compared to what, you know, a lot of the other cars looked like. Right. But in comparison, that you got to remember, we had me and my brother, Chris and Jimmy Mars, and Dale and Shane is three brother groups all at that same time. And those were some of the, you know, some of the best teams then. You know, you had Eckert and Robbie Allen when they were together. And those were, you know, really some of the best teams in that little time frame right there. You know, 96, 7, 8, 9, 2000. Um, you know, we, we traveled. Eckert and I ran up and down the roads together so much that Eckert's daughter called my brother Uncle Crip. Um, right, yeah. You know, that's how tight we all were. <laughs> yeah, and when he did suddenly pass in 2001, how hard was it for you to realize, like, hey, man, what am I going to do with my racing career? How much... Did you like think about it? Hey, am I going to be done or do I have enough people to support me? You know, I can still continue to this thing. Or did you even question about maybe quitting? I questioned whether it was still what I wanted to do, but I still felt like I had a lot of stuff to do in, in my career. You know, I could have walked away then as a, a three-time star champion, a world 100, a dirt track world championship, walked away, went into the used car business, which was what, what my dad done. And, you know, not, not really giving it another thought. But I don't know. I also felt like that was, you know, him and I built this together, and he'd been mad at me if I'd have walked away from it at that point. So, uh, shoot, uh, Mark Richards was calling me. I was actually on my way to Mark to build a new car when I got the phone call. Um, my brother had been sick. thought he had mono or something like that. Um, I said, well, I'll go build that new car. We weren't going to go to the topless. We didn't go to the topless. That year. Mark said, we'll just be here Monday morning. We'll build this car. So I'm in a truck driving to, to Mark's when I get the phone call because I was, he was just going to meet me back at Florence for the North-South 100. My brother was, and I was just going to build a new car at Mark's. Well, I was about three-quarters of the way there and had to turn around and drive truck back knowing all this. Yeah. And at that time, your world is just completely upside down. You know, you don't even know what to do, what to think, uh, any of that. And by the time I got home... I think Rick Ockland was driving for Mark at the time. Rick had said, well, I'll just take my car. You drive Mark's car this weekend. Wasn't about, I don't know, maybe right after the north-south. I think I actually wound up having a fast time in Mark's car for the north-south. And for some reason, I'm thinking it rained out or something. But I remember, you know, Ronnie Stuckey calling me right after that. saying, man, you know, let's put a deal together. I'll, I'll, I'll. I'll crew chief your race team for the rest of the year. And we'll try to win this have a Tampa thing in, in his honor, which we were leading it when he passed, we were leading to have a Tampa point at that time. And, mm-hmm. you know, then you had the nine 11 thing happen and all that, all of that, like all within like a two week time frame right there. So, uh, you know, we had a lot of things go on in your mind. you you went from having, all these people around you and everything really after the race season really changed for me because, you know, you're used to having all these people around you and all of a sudden, you know, basically I shut that team down and went to drive for Mark the next year. So I went from having all these people to not having nobody around. It was kind of a little adjustment for me in that part. You know, I, my brother and I played golf together. We did pretty much everything together. We, there pretty much wasn't a day that we weren't together 10 hours a day. And that was like, you know, somebody cut your left arm off. Right. Right. So he was definitely a big, big part of everything you did. And that's kind of something, I mean, I've never, 
I've heard a lot of stories Mark's told me about it and things like that, but I mean, that's pretty cool to see how close y'all were and really everything y'all got accomplished. But I got to ask about Australia. You know, I am number two and winless behind you. So just kind of tell everybody what Australia was, and, you know, how cool it was. A lot of people don't understand because I go there and, you know, I don't go to Arizona anymore and things like that. But just give back when you were there, obviously there was probably more people and it was, I don't know if it was a bigger deal because it didn't get the publicity on this side of the world, but just how, just tell, I mean, how big it is for the people over there. You know, when you go over there, I can remember going back, races. I went in 94 was the first year I went over and, uh, it was me, Swartz, Bloomquist, and a guy in California uh, named John Soares that owned everything that we drove. And we were there. I left, I think like the day or two after Thanksgiving and I flew straight to Florida to start racing when we got back. And I think we ran 18 races or something that time. And it wasn't nothing for there to be three, four, 5,000 people there, you know, for these match races. And they were all four lap, two American, two Australian match races and kept points, three, two, one, zero. So, you know, you had to pass cars all the time. So that was a pretty cool deal. And then, then I didn't go for like, eight or nine years. And then I started going back about, I don't know, 06, 07, I guess. And then we were in, the first time that I went, it was right-hand drive race cars. And you sit out there against the wall turbo. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> I know you've right. seen some of the super sedan stuff. But yeah. uh, then, you know, when I went back, we were left-hand drive American race cars. And that was when it really got good. And since I went back doing that, I, I'm pretty sure I've won I won everything I finished. Every feature I finished, I've won. Um, right. There was two of them. One, Jeremy Payne won that I I actually hit him and broke a right front spindle off. <laughs> and uh, one, I blew a motor up. And other than that, in like five years, something like that, I haven't lost a feature over there yet. But it's just really, really, to me, it's like the best racing vacation I can ever go on. And you probably feel the same way. You have a good time. The people are really nice to you. Um, you get to see things that you've never ever seen. You know, I've driven from east co- or west coast to east coast of Australia, all the way across through the outback, all that stuff across the the Nullable. Um, I've got to see things that a lot of people in this world haven't got to see, and and some of my very very best friends are Australian. Uh, you know, Michael Holmes, Ross Nicastri, Bruce McKenzie. Some of those are some of my really really good friends. Um. Uh, matter of fact, I'm getting ready to load a container here in a week or two for Michael to send over to Australia. Um, and I'm going to go back again at some point, whether I race or whether I just go over for a vacation. I don't know, but if I did race, that would be the only chance that I would would race would be over there. You're like the Dale Earnhardt of Australian racing then. You're unstoppable. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they they do. They think, I'm telling you, they are like Francis is king over there. Because he, he did. Like everywhere you go, they're like, Oh, yeah. We remember when Francis lapped up the second over here. I'm like, what? Which, I mean, I, I, understand, I see how it happened, but, like, they all love it. I'm telling you, it's awesome. I think I've probably sent probably somewhere in the mid-30s of race cars over there now. Probably still 30 race cars over there now. I couldn't tell you how many motors. <laughs> um, you know, that, like I said, I just, to me, I mean, no disrespect to Arizona. You know, they're building a nice thing out there and everything, but to me, that was my way of going racing. I mean, I turned the chili bowl down to go race in Australia. Well, Aussie's more fun, apparently, 
Turbo likes to have a good time there. <laughs> I'm telling you, Fran is a good time a, Turbo. It's a great <laughs> time, a lot of fun, a lot of sights, a lot of scenery. Definitely something. I mean, you get to hang out at, at places that experience. you don't. Yes, you get to go to places that, you know, you hear about on TV, see on TV. You know, I've been on Bondi Beach. I've been on Manly Beach. I've been to Surfer's Paradise. I've been on the Great Barrier Reef. I've been to one of my favorite places in West Australia is Fremantle. It's it's an old prison town, but yet yeah. it's a cool place to go to. You've drove for Dale Beitler, Larry Mooring, Mark Richards, Barry Wright, Clint Boyer, and Tim Logan. That's quite a list of car owners that you've drove for. What have you learned from racing with all those different types of car owners really the biggest thing i learned didn't have to do with racing every one of those guys that you just talked about are very very smart businessmen every one of them and they taught me more about when we were winning a lot of money how to take care of it how to invest it how to buy this sell that um you know those type things that that's what those people taught me more about life than racing it you know I watched Charlie and Larry and Freddie and them guys, you know, have these careers where they won all this money, but yet, you know, it, it, it they struggled later in life with a lot of things, you know, with doing stuff because they didn't really make a plan for what, what are we going to do when racing is done? And those guys all taught me to make a plan for when I was done with racing. You know, I said, was your I plan, was, was your early, plan to do it? The tech like you are sorry to cut you off there but i mean is that kind of what you had in mind or did it just fall into place and it's like hell this is better than what i had in mind <laughs> well originally my original plan i said when i was in my mid-30s that you know i would by the time i was 45 i would walk away and you would never ever see me at another racetrack again you know i'd go into the used car business i've always liked like classic old cars you know 68 69 70 Chevy pickups camaros corvettes and I wanted to get involved in that some way, you know, whether, you know, redoing them, buying them, selling them, trading them, something like that. And I raced till I was 50, 49, 49 or 50. And I left Charlotte. Not very many people knew Charlotte was my last race. I, I think my wife and daughter's probably the only people that really knew, maybe my mom and dad. And I really left there not exactly having a plan what was going to what I was going to do. You know, I, I mean, I, I had a nice shop here at my house and everything that I could do. The you know the car truck thing, and that was really the direction I had in my mind when I pulled out of the gate at Charlotte. And I talked to Swally. Well, you know, I kind of found out that's about the time that Jason Durham left the job I'm doing now to go be Davenport's crew chief, and it all just actually fell in place in a matter of two or three days. And I thought, well, we'll do this a while and see what, you know, see how this goes. And I, I really enjoy this more than probably I thought I was going to even. Um, there's parts of it you don't necessarily like. You know, you don't want to come down on somebody when you got to. You don't want to put a guy to the tail or this or that. But yet the rules are the rules, and that's what we're there to do. And I think more people respect the fact that I know how hard it is to put that guy back. And I, I try to give right. a guy every opportunity to get it right. But if I want a guy... And he comes back, and he's still wrong. He, he, we're going to pay the price for that. Obviously, Billy Moyer is still racing. Scott Bloomquist is still racing. How do you know as a driver when it's time to hang it up? Because I feel like some drivers, it's still in their blood, and they just can't do it. But I feel like you, you said, hey, I'm done racing. I want to do other things. How did you know that it was the right time to retire? Because I'm sure it was a hard thing to do. When I didn't want to be out there in that shop working on that race car, 
18 hours a day. And in all honesty, I'm not a computer literate guy. You know, I'm more old school pencil and paper. Um, I have to get my wife to turn my computer on for me because I can't even remember the passwords to turn the damn thing on. So I, when the shock dinos and all that really became where you needed to stay in the truck and be on the computer and not on a set of scales looking at your car, that was probably the biggest change in my mind is, hey, this isn't, I don't like standing here in front of this shock, this spring smasher, this shock dyno, as well as I like having the car on the scales and bending under the car. And that's, that's when I, that's when it really sunk into me that it was time to do something different. I got one last question for him, Turbo, before we get to the driver assessment. I tweeted at you last okay. week, Steve, and I asked you what race you thought was your biggest win of the career because we have a, v- a video I posted that the World 100 was obviously the biggest win at the time. But then when you won Knoxville Nationals, you told Rigsby in the press conference that Knoxville was his biggest win of your career. I know they're huge wins, but I want to settle the debate now. What do you think, gun to your head, what race is the biggest win of your career? Man, you, you still have to go back and say World 100 right now. The reason I said Knoxville at the time was Eldor was on, and I don't mean no disrespect to Eldor because it's still one of my favorite places to go. You know, I've been going there since I was I probably 76, 7, something like that. The year Doug Kenimore won it was the first year I was ever there. So a race that has lasted that long has to be the granddaddy of all of them. There's no question about that. And Eldora still has to be the biggest win of my career. Knoxville, the reason I said what I said at Knoxville is it, it was the first of the three-day format. It was what, what we're going to now. It wasn't the old-school race, you know, the qualify one day, heat race, feature race the next day. You know, Knoxville changed all that. Um, you know, where you get a check every night. And Knoxville had the payoff. I mean, I think Knoxville forced Eldora into some things that made Eldora still be as strong as it is right now. Right. With what they did. It's two completely different times of career. You know, they're, I don't know, 15, 16 years apart, something like that. 12, 10 years, 11 years, 12 years apart, something like that anyway. And it just, it, it's hard to believe how much the sport changed in that, that amount of time. You know, and then you can still throw in the topless, um, the Dirt Track World Championship. You know, I won the Colossal at Batesville, or at, uh, at Charlotte for 50000 Um, You know, I, I, I got to win a lot of the really, really, really big races. And, and Eldora still has to be the biggest one when I go back now that I've retired and go back and think back through it all. Because I've been going there since 1976 as a kid. And to finally win the thing in 99, there was 220-some-ish cars there. And you beat them all? That's something to brag about. You know what I'm, I'm saying? And not that Knoxville or the dirt track, I think it was probably 100 cars at the dirt track when I won it, or 120, something like that. Um, you know, I won 77000 some odd dollars at Kentucky Lake one night. Um, they had like a 10000 and a 10000 on Friday and Saturday and win them both, and there's a $30,000 bonus and, you know, all kinds of stuff. The Big Johnson Championship that year. Um, you know, 99 was that year that I felt like put me on, you know, even though we'd won the three stars championships before that, 
99 put me on that. Well, yeah, he can points race, but he can win those big races too if, if everything goes right. All right, last question, Steve. We ask every person on our show to assess Tyler Herb's driving ability, maybe some things he needs to work on, stuff that you're seeing he needs maybe to improve on. So I want you to be honest with him. Give him a letter grade of what Tyler Herb is as a driver and what maybe he needs to become a better driver because we're trying to make him the best driver in the country. <laughs> oh, wow. He just laughs. I'm going to give him... B minus, and the only reason is, in order to win that championship, he's got to learn a little bit of what I did. That you have to finish that race with the deck in the car, and and I will say, a little asterisk to that is he's improved that over the last two to three years tremendously. Like he was kind of wreckers or checkers, and now he's learned that points add up at the end of the year. That's fair. I mean, I feel like that's a pretty good assessment. <laughs> I mean, if you know, that's that's just the, the, the. Don't you feel like that's exactly right? If you, oh yeah, first you got to be like JD. Like, yeah, JD's worst nights. He still finishes. You know, he doesn't. Like, I feel like JD, if he really wanted to win every night, he could drive as hard as he possibly could. And at one point in the night, he would be in a chance to win, but he wouldn't finish half as much as he does. And like him and Sheppy, like. They're just so good at uh, – it should have been a 10th place night, and they just ease on through there and run fifth or sixth because people crash or, you know, silly stuff like that. We're like, if I think I have a chance to win, you were exactly where JD with. was six years ago, seven years ago. Yeah, that's kind of how I feel. Like, like I could turn it on and go as hard <laughs> as I possibly can and put myself in that contention, but 90% of the time, that's not the way to do it. Like, you just – when it's your night, it's your 90% night. 90% of the time, happen. the right rear tire is hooked and the spore is knocked off. I don't care whether it's, exactly. whether it's you, J.D., or Sheppy. If you get to doing right. that, you've got the spoiler knocked off or the right rear tire cooked or something. And this is coming from the points master himself, Tyler. He's won four championships on four different national series. So, I mean, he knows what he's talking about. I believe it. I'm Listen, I'm telling you, i got a notebook. Between all five people we've done so far, six people, I'm telling you, I'll better watch out. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now i got a question for you, Tyler. The other, the yeah. other people have done the show. What they grade you? Uh, I'd say Mark. Mark graded me. He he basically said the same thing you needed to do. Um, he was like a. Mark was more blunt about it. He was like, he just got to not crash, not be stupid. You know how Mark is. He's pretty straight up. <laughs> Fab, Fab. Fab's like, keep nice. doing what you're what doing. <laughs> Fab was yeah, saying, Fab keep doing what you're doing. Crazy. But Babs not really a points racer, I don't think. Babs is Summer Nationals 39th, and if you win 20 of them and crash 10, you can still win the points. Like, that's Babs' outlook. So, me and Bab were on the same uh, – Bab gave me the most praise, but, <laughs> I mean, I definitely get what you're saying. It's a uh, – Now, I'm going to give got you a lot other. Of time From a fan standpoint, you're about as – you, Bronson, and uh, probably Bobby are probably three of the most exciting to watch. That's what I – that's Especially one you thing and I Colin, like you go to Granite City and watch you and Kyle and Bobby race for the lead, that's going to get exciting. Right, right. That is one thing that we always kid about. Like at Fairbury last year, I quit, you might win I the T-shirt. Exactly. That's one thing that we always try to accomplish if we know things aren't going. I'm telling you, Fairbury last year, I got I broken the the qualifier, or whatever, and Randall was like. We roll out there for so this B main. You just know when you're feeling it. And like I'm telling you, I'm passing guy. I start like 29th in the B main. And I hit Ricky Thornton and flip, damn near, whatever. 
And Randall's like, dude, I was standing up there, and there was more people watching that than there had been up at the racetrack the entire time because they were like, like they knew something exciting was going to happen, and sure as shit, it did. It just wasn't good, you know. But yeah, we got to work on that. We don't want that to be the reason people watch every time. We want, you know, we want people to be like, hell yeah, and run down to victory lane or something. Well, Steve, we could talk to you all day long. Thanks for taking time out of your day. I know you were watching your daughter when I texted you, and we appreciate and uh, hope you and the wife stay healthy and your family stays healthy and can't wait to see you at the racetrack. And they've even closed the golf courses around here. There ain't much to, to, to do. There's going to be a population boom here in about 10 months. <laughs> That's, That's probably right. Thanks, Steve. <laughs> all right. Thank you, guys. Come on, Turbo. Steve Francis actually thought the Knoxville Nationals was a bigger win at the time than the World 100. How crazy is he? I mean, it's the World 100. It's the granddaddy of them all. Yeah, World 100 is always going to be number one race. And I mean, I guess unless they have a ridiculous payout, the million, I could say, you know, for Earl, that might be Earl Pearson and Earl Baltus. I mean, those two races right there maybe could be a big race if something like that comes up again. But yeah, Francis winning the World 100 is by far you know, his biggest uh, single weekend accomplishment, put it that way. Is he the face of points racing? He is. If you think of points racing, you think of Rick Eckert, Steve Francis, Mark Richards, even though he doesn't drive, I would say he's a point. He's got points racing figured out. And, uh, you know, Francis is just good at it, man. He figured out how to win on every. Did he win a Lucas Oil championship too? Yeah, did, did I miss that one? Did he? He's won he Lucas Oil, World of Outlaws, Have a Tampa, and Stars. So he's won in four pretty legit series. I mean, has Scott done that? Did Scott ever win a Star Series? I would say not. I would say no. So he'll be the only one to ever do that because no one, I mean, Stars is done. They'll never come back or have a tamper. Well, Eckert has won an outlaw. He could still win a Lucas Oil one. I don't think he's won a Lucas Oil. He's got three of the four. So Eckert, yeah, Eckert could be your next person that could ever do that. But right now, Francis is probably sitting pretty for the only person to ever achieve that. So that's pretty cool. You know, he's, he's got it figured out. Slow and steady, man. Just the turtle at the end of the year. Moving on, we decided to put our segments after the fact because, you know, the national news of the coronavirus and, you know, iRacing, which, took, which I love talking about that. But our favorite segment I like is our Who's Berkey of the Week, a.k.a. Who's Back of the Week. And I'll go first, Turbo, and mine is Vintage Racing Videos. I don't know if you know this, but they used to have VHSs and DVDs of races, and now every platform of social media, every Dirt on Dirt's doing it, uh, Dirt Vision's doing it. Flow Racing's doing it. Everybody is showing old school races and vintage races. So it's pretty cool to see videos that have been lost in time that, you know, all these media entities are showing these. And also shout out to Steve Gigas, Sports Plus Video, for giving all the video for us here at Dirt on Dirt and Greg Stevens. A whole bunch of stuff. It's pretty neat, though, to see some old school racing like that. And actually, we have it captured and stuff like that. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. Like, when I... Battleground Speedway was my home track for however many, you know, my first three years of racing street stocks and things like that. And I, there was a guy that set up behind the concession stand. You could buy all the DVDs and VHSs from like every race that had ever happened there. And I always remember that I would go buy my street stock race from the week before just so I had it. And I still have all home. And you really kind of take it for granted now because you can just log in dirt on dirt and watch 20 races from the weekend. And it's not as, you know, it's so easily accessible that, when you watch one of those old sprint car races on dirt vision or, you know, an old, uh, world outlaw race that was live on CBS or whatever, it's like, man, this is crazy how far we've come that, you know, you had to wait however long before it would be broadcasted live, or you had to, you know, you had to be home that day to sit there and watch it before there's DVR and things like that. So the fact that a lot of those races have been captured and kept, you know, over time, it's, it's cool to go back and watch them. 
and it really it makes me feel spoiled because I can watch a year's worth of racing in a week, you know, if I binge watch it, right? Or I can watch every race that's ever happened at Atomic Speedway if I want to. So it's uh it really makes me appreciate everything the guys at Dirt on Dirt, Dirt Vision, all them, you know, flow racing do because they have made dirt late model racing so accessible to the world where before if you I mean if you never went to Battleground Speedway, you probably couldn't watch a video from there. You know, and that's crazy how how our world changes and how dirt late model racing is just growing. You know, you can watch racing from all over the country, different places, Australia. Um, you can watch midget race. I mean, I'm a huge race fan. I watch all the speed shift stuff. Every sprint race that's taken place in Pennsylvania this year, I've watched five times because when I get on YouTube, that's the first thing that pops up to watch right now. So it's, uh, it's, it's really cool. And then just, a, you know, it's like a history lesson. Like in history class, that was the one thing I did like is when we could watch any video about stuff. And it's like dirt late model history class all over again. You just get online and you can watch a race from 93 that Freddie Smith wins, you know. I think the fans are loving it. We're getting a lot of good feedback. But hopefully we get to real racing here in the near future and actually get our on-demand stuff is but what's your Berkey of the week my Berkey of the week is a picture i saw on twitter it was posted by the fast 49 and it was a picture of blaine holding a huge i think it was a striper or a hybrid i don't know exactly what those fish are down where he's at but it was a monster fish and i thought it was funny because he had all the area around blaine like painted out you know like he used word art or whatever to scratch out the area so you didn't know where he caught that fish at and i just it made me think of when I first got Twitter in 2015, 2016, I haven't had it that long. Um, you know, when he was winning all those races with Rumley and them, they would always post like funny pictures, you know, Kevin always like beat around the bush about the device. He would post all these pictures and black out underneath the car. He, you know, he, he was really good at like teasing the public with what he had going on. And JD, that's how, I mean, 90% of people that know JD, they know he fishes and hunts and he races. And, uh, you know, he always, is like posting pictures of these monster hybrids that he catches and he never really has them blacked out. So now I think it's funny that, you know, the two worlds have come together. He's hiding his fishing spots now because there's no racing going on. So he doesn't want anyone to go steal his thunder there where, you know, four or five years ago, they were really worried about people figuring out what they had going on under the left rear. So I just thought it was funny and that's my birthday of the week. Yeah, Kevin Rumley was hiding speed secrets. Jonathan Davenport is hiding fishing secrets. But yeah, it's so much. It's I'm looking at the picture right now. It's so funny how much Blaine looks like JD. It's pretty comical. <laughs> he does. I'm telling you, when he grows a beard, he'll look just like him. It's pretty. It's pretty funny how uh, how much he resembles his dad and how much he's changed. Like in 2015, Blaine did not look like that. He was a little baby, and now he's like grown up to be this big boy who's going to look just like JD. Football star too. He loves playing football. He's playing catch with them at the Dirt Track World Championship. I've always said this to JD. He's the most famous dirt late model racing kid in our sport. Oh yeah, for sure. I think Jay Shepard, you could put a, a pool of five and you know, they're all pretty famous, but Blaine's definitely very well. He's known. like the original one. Cause 2015 was like yeah. when social media was going around. Right. He's the OG, um, superstar kid, superstar racer car kid. That's what he would be. And, uh, I think Jay Shepard trying to slide in there now too, with his Fairberry when he did the tongue out and gave him the rock on, <laughs> that was pretty cool too. That was one of my favorite kid in the picture moments. I don't, I mean, I always look at funny stuff like that, like Jackie Bogg, his interviews and stuff. There's always kids or dogs, and, like, I like stuff like that. That's funny. Those are little things that I pay attention to. What's your best, like, thing you remember about a kid or something funny in Victory Lane? Like, that David Sievers has a raccoon. Like, I've never seen the raccoon in Victory Lane, but it's always at the racetrack, and I think it's hilarious. Yeah, and uh, Ben Shelton does his website, and I think they 
have like a raccoon on their t-shirts they made at the very end of last year or the very beginning of this year because I remember Peter's you know putting that on their website and yeah, that's pretty crazy. I like. I always like when Blaine won that little pedal car at the Show Me 100, and after the oh, races yeah, yeah. in the pits in the pit stall, he was just going around in a circle racing. He wanted to be like his daddy. Like he always says, "Daddy." So that's pretty funny. That was like a very memorable one. But yeah, with Jace with his tongue out doing the rock on was pretty cool. But our last segment is Ask G's, and I texted you. I said, "What's a good idea for this?" And you said, "Let's do what is the Illuminati." Why did you want to pick? this ask you a second what is the illuminati i mean back to the corona thing a little bit i watch a lot of netflix and youtube documentaries and like things like that it's really interesting to me because like like the average person is only like like i've said it before like anything that's a big deal to you is like what you you make it like if you you know if you think you're fat or you have an issue and you make it a big deal in your mind it's a big deal and like the news right now it's like corona 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 well if you if you start going to other sites and look at and just read other things, you know, the, on Netflix, there's a series and it's, uh, you know, America's book of secrets. And then there's conspiracies and all these things. And, uh, a lot of them has to do with the Illuminati. Well, if you do any research, you know, right now, a lot of people have downtime. So if you want to kill a day, just start reading and listening to videos about the Illuminati. And basically there's like a, in a nutshell, the Illuminati is a higher society of really, really wealthy people that run the world. And we've talked about it a lot, so it's just, it's interesting to me, it's interesting to me, and Caitlin's mom is, like, super obsessed with it, so she gives me, like, four and a half hours of details about it every time we talk to her, and I just thought it was interesting, and most people probably have never even heard of that in dirt late model racing, just the, you know, the crowd that goes to the racetrack isn't a crowd that would really know about it so i thought it would be interesting to google and kind of give everybody a treat about it yeah historical sense the term illuminati refers to the bavarian illuminati secret society that operated for only a decade it says on here from 1776 to 1785 they had different ideas where they own to educate members in philanthropy and other secular values so they could influence political decisions when they came to power so it says it was only 10 years but obviously you have guys like um People think Kanye West and Jay-Z are in it because they're always doing like the signal, the Hova signal, and that's like the sign of the Illuminati. But there's always been conspiracy theories about this. But Turbo, I don't think this is a Illuminati thing. That's just me personally. I mean, I don't know that it is. I just think that it's something to, you know, right now you only have the opinion of what you can see. And if you if you can read into it, it's like, well, man, that kind of does make sense in a weird way. And I don't know, it just adds something to think about. Like I hate reading the same old thing about Corona and it started and things like that so for me it's like it gives me a sense like man i hope that comes true and like i find out and everyone gets busted because then we would all know that the illuminati is real or it isn't real so it's it's interesting to me i don't know that it is but it's definitely you think there's a higher power up there that's controlling everything i can i can go with that a little bit i i do i really do think that like we're in a sense we're pawns to what's going on like, that's what I mean. Like, I, I don't, I'm not a big voter because, like, yeah, I mean, I could vote for this person or that person. But really, do you think, I mean, we go to electoral college and all that. Like, it's just a, you mean, I don't know. I just, I've really never worried about politics. And what I enjoy and what I care about during moderation has always gone on. And for the first time in my life now, politics or not politics, really, but the, you know, the virus and what's going on globally is affecting everyone. So it's like damn like what's going on we need to figure this out so since it's affecting my dirt late model racing yes i am into it right now and 
I'm trying to figure out and get to the bottom of it and solve America's problems. Crazy time right now in America. But I got to ask, you got any hobbies you've been starting since the quarantine besides reading up on the Illuminati? Done anything else? Uh, I actually, me and my good buddy Devin Moran, we, uh, we had a big indoor go-kart race this weekend. Uh, rode four-wheelers till we were blue in the face. Uh, just uh, really just been trying to do a lot of outdoorsy stuff. That's one thing that's crazy. I went to Devin's and I don't have cell phone service for three days. And when I got done there and I started headed back home, I was like, well, nothing's changed. The world's still, I mean, everything's pretty much where I left it. So it was good to, you know, get away and not, I think I should, everyone should, you know, just for a week, put your phone away and not worry about social media and what the new latest and breaking news is. And that's basically what I'm doing right now. I'm going to go work on uh, Stephen Roberts stuff and there's no cell phone service in a shop. So I'll be off the grid for the next however long and, uh, just doing a lot of DIY home improvement things I've never really gotten around to do. And I'm learning to do and just being more patient. Uh, I'm not a sit down, not do anything type person. So this is really, really hard for me, just like it is everyone else. But, you know, you got to make the best of it. And that's pretty much what we're trying to do. Shooting a lot of guns, just really killing time any way I possibly can. All I've done is run outside, go to work here at Dirt on Dirt. And I've became a series director of Swab Nationals, in case you were wondering. Can you hoop anymore? Are you allowed to go hoop? Uh, I haven't been able to go hoop because they've closed everything down here in Illinois. Nothing is open like publicly like that. The only thing you can go is get maybe takeout food or uh, deliveries. Like the only thing you can get, like you can't even go into any of the stores and only essential workers can actually like leave the house and stuff like that. I thought Rigsby had a full basketball court in the basement like Denny Hamlin. Oh, I wish he did. He's not that big time. Oh, I, I don't know. I've just heard it. that's another thing. There's a lot of conspiracies about Rigsby and, you know, he owns Fairbury. And I don't know. You could just go on for days, get on the internet, look it up. That's just my two cents. Last thing is, Turbo, I want you to give us the emotional speech to the American people, to the dirt late model world. Give us an emotional, inspiring speech that can help us get this through this, and hopefully we can get this done sooner rather than later. You know, they say the things that get taken away from you and mean the most are the ones that you naturally attract to and things like that. And, uh, the more that we just get it done and over with, the faster we can get back to racing. And obviously the world's not going to end at this point. We're on day 14 of quarantine. So as of right now, my statement's true. The world isn't going to come to an end and we will get to race late models again. So just, you know, make the most of it. Do a lot of things that you would never have time to do. And, you know, a lot of the people that bitch and complain, oh, you know, racing never stops. Racing never stops. We need an off season. We go from Arizona to Florida to right back into racing. Uh, you definitely got your wish. And we've probably had the longest hiatus. You know, it doesn't seem like it, but it's just because there's nothing. There's not even a local race. Hartwell Speedway is the only place it raced this, in the last two weeks, I think. And, you know, it makes us really appreciate how much we can go race and how easily accessible it is to us. So, uh, you know, if you've ever wanted a break from racing, now's it. And, you know, go speak with your family. Call everyone you love. Do everything you've ever wanted to do within reason. and. uh when it gets back to racing, uh, nobody uh, nobody needs to have any excuses or no bitching and complaining about we're racing too much because I promise you we're ready and I know uh, everyone else that you know is that serious about racing and passionate about racing is ready to go. I could run through a brick wall right now after hearing that. Right? Yes, that I'm was awesome. You, when, I quit, when I quit racing or whatever, I'm going to be a team coach. I might be a team coach for a second grade little league football team, but I promise you I can get somebody pumped up. That was a very inspirational speech, Turbo. Stay safe when you're headed down to Georgia. 
Take care of yourself. Everybody at home, take care of yourself. Listen to your government. We'll get through this. We'll be car racing here sooner rather than later. Turbo, thanks for everything. I love you, brother. Peace, love, and chicken grease.